evidence and answers. Tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukren. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be interviewing renowned apologist Dr. Fuzz Rana. Fuzz is the vice president of Reasons to Believe Apologetics Ministry. In this interview, the hot topic is monkey DNA. And are we really that closely related? Now, here's our host, Pat Zukren. We're talking here with Dr. Fuzz Rana. He's written several great books. Who was Adam? Life in the Lab, Cells Design, and Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. He holds a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. And, you know, Fuzz, we're talking about in Darwin's theory, there are the mechanism for macro evolutionary change, creating new body parts and new designs is mutations and natural selection. But one of the things we're discovering is that those two mechanisms really fail to create the macro evolutionary change needed to make Darwin's system work. Isn't that right? Yeah, Pat, that's a really important question and a real important point that you're bringing up there, that the mechanisms where you're having mutation that, that is operated on by natural selection is a great mechanism for causing variation within a species of what we might call microevolution or adaptation. It can even account for speciation where one species may give rise to a closely related sister species. The, the formation or the, sorry, the origin of the Galapagos finches is a, a, an example of speciation caused by that kind of a mechanism. Uh, but it's questionable whether that mechanism can actually account for genuine biological innovation. It's a great mechanism for fine-tuning an existing design, but that mechanism doesn't seem to be able to account for the type of innovation or, or creation of novelty that you really need to have to drive macroevolutionary changes. And so many evolutionary biologists today are arguing that maybe the mechanism of evolution is going to be largely focused on changes or alteration in, in gene regulation or gene expression, particularly in what are called developmental genes. These are genes that are like master switches that turn on and turn off genetic programs that specify the formation of the processes needed for embryological development. And it turns out that when you start altering the expression of these genes, in the laboratory, we people have done lots of experiments looking at fruit flies, for example, and manipulating these genes. What you end up producing are these monsters, not creatures that would be, you know, well-suited for the environment in which they would have to live in. So even that, that mechanism of where you could get potentially large-scale changes to explain the large-scale sudden changes that we see in the fossil record that mechanism leads to catastrophe. It doesn't lead to the kind of coordinated changes you would need to bring about the appearance of new biological systems. Yes, you're listening to our interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana. Now, Fuzz Rana, you know, in making changes in the DNA, you know, mutation, we realized the more and more we're learning in your area of microbiology that it's not so simple as just reconfiguring you know, a few letters in the amino acid combinations here. 
we used to think, you know, it's like uh, the word God. And if you just change the words around, you get dog. And it's still a legible, you know, valid word. But we're learning it's much, much more complex than that, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, again, those kind of changes are great to explain variations within a species or even speciation events. But that mechanism simply cannot account for large-scale changes. And the, the mechanisms that you'd have to rely on, again, altering gene expression patterns and specifically altering the gene expression patterns of what are called the developmental genes, those changes are not well tolerated by organisms. They almost invariably lead to catastrophic results. And so we really are left with wanting a mechanism to, to account for events in the history of life, like the Cambrian explosion, where suddenly you're going from single-celled organisms or colonial aggregates of cells to organisms with complex body plans and organ systems, biological systems that are integrated with each other in this highly coordinated manner. That mechanism of these single changes in the DNA is really incapable of accounting for those kind of large-scale innovations. Now, you know, Fuzz, another, you know, thing we hear are hominids, you know, Homo erectus, Homo naledi, Neanderthal man. Uh, Are these valid transitional forms between apes and men? Well, in my view, we've yet to establish the fact of human evolution from the fossil record. Now, we do indeed have these hominins that existed as you described, in the fossil record, but it's very difficult to relate those hominins to one another with evolutionary trees. For example, virtually every tree that I've seen produced by evolutionary biologists is heavily disputed, and whenever there is a new fossil find, whether it's of a new hominin species or just a new representation of an existing species, many times it causes these anthropologists to go out and redraw their evolutionary trees, but yet it never leads to consensus, but rather even more heavily disputed debates about what that ev- those evolutionary trees look like. And so it's not uncommon to see headlines associated with these discoveries that a new discovery shakes up the evolutionary tree. Well, if human evolution is a well-established fact, and we can show evolutionary relationships with these hominins, new discoveries should solidify ideas that shouldn't throw the discipline into repeated chaos, which is what happens every time these new discoveries are made. And on top of that, we don't really know how these different hominins relate to one another in an evolutionary sense, and we cannot draw a pathway through the hominin fossil record documenting this ascent of man in evolutionary terms. Creatures that we thought to be part of that lineage or that evolutionary pathway, like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Lucy, have all been rendered side branches in evolutionary dead ends. And so nobody really knows what that pathway necessarily looks like. And so to me, the hominid fossil record is telling us that there were creatures that existed, but it doesn't necessarily indicate those creatures had to be evolutionarily connected to one another or to modern humans. 
you know, that's maybe a surprise to a lot of listeners because what we are presented with often is that, you know, these form a very almost airtight case showing a evolutionary progression from chimpanzees to humans, these hominids do. But what you're saying is that the majority of the scientific community, they're still in debate as to what exactly these hominids are and that the tree line doesn't necessarily go from chimpanzee to human as smoothly, you know, as we see in many of the pictures in our textbooks. Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, you know, when you think about the, the hominid fossil record and in your, if you're enmeshed in the literature, discoveries wind up uh, creating chaos more so than anything else. A, a beautiful example would be that of Homo naledi, which was recently discovered a few years ago by Lee Berger and his team uh, in South Africa. And when this hominin was discovered, they weren't able to date the hominin, but they concluded that this creature must have existed at around 2 million years ago, given its anatomical features. And they argued that these features were such that it, this was the missing link, the transitional form that related creatures like uh, Lucy to the creatures like Homo erectus, that this was the creature that gave rise to Homo erectus and it displaced Homo habilis, it displaced Lucy as these side branches, as these dead ends. This was the transitional form. Well, a couple of years later, researchers have now been able to date Homo naledi, and it turns out that Homo naledi existed about 300,000 years ago, not 2 million years ago. That being the case, it's now completely out of place. It's completely out of sequence. And so here's an example where this discovery displaced all of these creatures that were traditionally thought to be the transitional form. And then we have another discovery that displaces Homo naledi that makes it impossible for Homo naledi to be that transitional form. And I could, you know, again, spend hours going through example after example like this where discoveries are just turning this whole discipline upside down time and time and time again. It's really hard to know what to accept as being well-established and what is highly speculative. So sadly, in textbooks, there's a very nice, neat, clean image presented to us of this ascent of man that is anything but what it really looks like. You know, that may be surprising for many of our listeners. Uh, one of the arguments that's often given is the similarity in DNA between monkeys and men. And as our scientists here, Dr. Fuzz Rana has explained, really, it's the differences are quite significant and there's really no mechanism to create that kind of macro evolutionary change. Darwin's theory hasn't demonstrated that mutations and natural selection can produce that kind of change. So what you're saying, Fuzz Rana, is that to go from, you know, monkeys to men, Genetic mutation is tremendously complex. It's highly unlikely that natural processes could have made those kind of changes in the extremely complex DNA. Yes, that, that would be my contention is uh, we do have mechanisms that can cause changes or mutations in DNA. Some of them are small-scale changes. Some of them can lead to large-scale changes in the organism. But those that are small-scale changes can alter, you know, proteins and maybe even gene expression, but it's typically in a very limited manner. Those changes that can produce large-scale changes tend to create 
biological monsters. And it's not only just simply producing large-scale changes, but those changes have to happen in a highly coordinated uh, manner in order for those changes to be meaningful or to be innovative in a way that would allow that organism to have new biological properties that would make it amenable to survive in the world that we live in. So, Fuzz, you know, we talked about some of the major flaws, and these are, you know, significant flaws in Darwin's theory that it's lacking transitional forms in the fossil record. It's lacking the mechanism for change that mutations and natural selection don't cause those macroevolutionary changes needed, but just microevolutionary changes, changes within a species. Theory has failed to show that the origin of life, we can create life from non-life. Uh, it seems like those are some fatal flaws to the theory. If the theory doesn't work, is there an alternative that should be considered? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm somebody that would advocate for a position known as intelligent design, where I would argue that when we look at the world around us, we see not only the inability of evolutionary mechanisms to account for key innovations in the history of life, but that when we look at living systems, living systems look as they've actually been designed by a mind. My area of specialization is biochemistry, and one of the things that blows my mind is, is how similar biochemical systems are to man-made designs, that those properties that we would recognize as reflecting the work of a human designer are on full display when we look at biochemical systems. But in addition to that, we also see with these biochemical systems designs that are eerie in their similarity to human designs. For example, there are protein complexes inside the cell that literally are machines and literally function like machines where you see protein complexes that are rotary motors replete with faders and rotors and drive shafts and, and cams and bushings. Or we see that the machinery that manipulates DNA, which is an information system, DNA contains digital information, literally functions like a computer system at its bare essence. In fact, that similarity is so startling and so, uh, so profound that it has given launch to a new area of nanotechnology called DNA computing, where computer scientists are building DNA, or sorry, building computers from DNA and the proteins that manipulate DNA. See processes in the cell that look like assembly line operations, and they are replete with quality control checkpoints that are so sophisticated and so impressive or the way that metabolic processes work inside the cell, highly optimized processes that are inspiring engineers that are designing electrical grids in such a way to avoid catastrophic breakdown with part of the grid fails. Metabolic systems have these fail-safe mechanisms built into them that prevents metabolism from failing if part of the metabolic system undergoes a defect. So when you look at these systems, that to me suggests that there is a mind behind them. And the fact that these designs are so elegant that they can inspire new technology, to me, is mind-blowing and suggests in and of itself that there's a mind. But then when you couple this with the inability of, of evolutionary mechanisms to explain where these systems come from, I think the only conclusion is there's got to be a mind 
that brought life into existence, and it explains the designs that we see in biology. Now, if that's a reasonable alternative, then why aren't we presented that in the arena of science and, and in the public schools and universities? Well, in my view, it's not the, the absence of evidence. It, it's essentially philosophical constraints. The philosophy that undergirds science today is called methodological naturalism, and that's a, a $25 word that just simply means that when we engage in science, we have to function as if a creator doesn't exist, that we cannot explain the world around us through design, but rather we have to rely on mechanism and processes to explain the universe and phenomena within the universe, which means that the design hypothesis is off the table even before we begin scientific investigation. And so it's not that the evidence is lacking, it's a philosophy that constrains science from following the evidence where it leads. I see. Now, you know, you're a serious scientist here, and you believe that this intelligent designer is the god of the Bible. Why is that? Well, to me, it's because what we can conclude about that designer from the universe matches the god of the Bible. The universe has a beginning, which means that that god that brought the universe into existence, that designer, must transcend the universe, must, must exist outside of the universe. We see design and an orderliness to the universe, uh, which is consistent with God's character, that it's telling us that that transcendent creator is a personal creator that has a purpose for the universe, and the laws of nature, because of their constancy and their universality, suggest a God of order, which again is consistent with what, how Scripture describes the God of the Bible. And then we, we note that we see, for example, the share, as I was mentioning, similarities between the designs we make as human designers and the designs that we see in the created world. That, to me, finds explanation in the idea that human beings are made in God's image. If that's the case, then what we would do is create, as many creators would mimic our creator. And so this seems to whittle down the options so that it looks like you're looking at a a transcendent personal creator that would be a, an orderly creator that functions in a way that the world around us is somehow echoed in what we do as human designers, meaning that there's a resonance or a connection that we have fundamentally or in essence with our creator. And so to me, the Christian worldview and the Christian scriptures best account for that scientific evidence in light of God's nature and character. So you're also saying then that belief in God doesn't hinder science. I don't think so at all. I think belief in God actually encourages science because as Christians, studying the world around us is a way to understand God better, to get a glimpse into God's nature and character. But that, and so it's an act of worship. But beyond that, we are commanded as human beings made in God's image, to bring the world under our control, to be stewards of the planet, to use the world around us to benefit humanity, and to care for people who are sick or poor. And this is very powerful motivation for doing science. And in fact, it was the Christian worldview in the 1600s that was largely responsible for the birth of modern-day science. The birth of modern-day science went hand-in-hand with the Christian worldview, 
So the Christian worldview motivates science in a very powerful way. You know, Fuzz, um, as we, you know, bring this section to an end here, I mean, what what's the significance of having, you know, God back in the sciences, not only for science, but I guess for mankind? What is the significance there? Well, I think what it means is that instead of science revealing to us a universe that lacks purpose and meaning, that, that instead of viewing human beings as lacking purpose and meaning, what I think science is pointing to is a universe that is pregnant with meaning and that human beings have a very high purpose, that we have a special place in the cosmos. But also, I think bringing a Christian worldview back into science provides the necessary ethical and moral framework to properly uh, pursue scientific discovery in advance in a way that it promotes human flourishing and, and minimizes a human exploitation. Right. You know, as Dr. Will Provine from Cornell University stated, you know, if Darwinism is true, it ultimately means no life after death, no absolute foundation for right and wrong, no ultimate meaning for life, and no free will. That's someone that really understands the implications, you know, if the naturalist worldview is indeed true. That's some pretty profound uh, implications there. It is. And, you know, the thing that's, that's ironic is that that worldview, which is co-opting discoveries in science and I think misappropriating them to satisfy that worldview, actually in and of itself undermines the very scientific enterprise. Because if you're saying there's no such thing as free will, then science itself cannot progress. Science can only progress if there's actually beings that have free will capabilities that are applying the scientific method. And so that very worldview implodes on itself and makes the enterprise of science impossible. Wow, those are some pretty big implications there. Fuzz, you know, thanks for being with us today. If people want more information, maybe this is the first time they've heard Christian worldview or intelligent design in the area of science. Where can they go for more information? Well, Pat, I would just suggest, if I could, that people go to our website, reasons.org, www.reasons.org, and they can access all kinds of articles and podcasts and, and audio files that deal with a wide range of science faith issues. And all of this is accessible for no cost. It's, all this stuff is, is freely available to people, and that would be a great place to start. Yes, fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana, Fazale Rana, Vice President of Reasons to Believe. Great website, reasons.org. You can also get his book, Who is Adam? Creating Life in the Lab and Cells Design. The Cells Design. Fantastic books there. Well, Fuzz, thank you for being with us here on the 808 State Update. Pat, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be with you. We've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would be interested in having Pat speak at your church or Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call at area code 808-483-0586, or you may also contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep Pat's broadcast on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. 
for the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You will find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 oh,